For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. From the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Beginning last Sunday, and for the remainder of the Epiphany season, the epistle readings will be taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The first thing that you learn to do in a Bible study, or you learn when you do a Bible study of this letter, is that Paul is writing to a divided church. I think that came across in the reading today quite well. I mean, obviously we have somebody who's studied New Testament uh, and read it in Greek, perhaps. I don't know. Um, uh, Reading it this morning. It's exemplified in that reading today in which Paul writes, What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Years ago, I was the rector of a parish where people would say, I belong to Father so-and-so, or I belong to Father Nelson, or I belong to Father so-and-so, because there was a whole long history. And some would say, yeah, I belong to Christ even better than the rest of you. Is Christ divided? Paul asks. How can the body of Christ be divided? There is, as he reminds the church later, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and you and I stand here today as members of that one church, that one Christ, part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Throughout this letter, instead of appealing to these Christians to put their factionalism behind them, he recalls them to remember the uniqueness of Christ crucified. He does not say, why can't you foolish people agree to disagree? He also doesn't say, why can't you just be at peace for crying out loud, what's the matter with you? He calls them to remember the uniqueness of Christ, that the source of their wisdom, the source of their righteousness, the source of their sanctification, and the source of their redemption is Christ himself. The Corinthian Christians have considered themselves to be advanced. They are a cosmopolitan people. They are intellectuals. And they love so-called wisdom. And in that thirst for sophistication, they have spurned the pure milk of the gospel. They have thought themselves to be beyond the basics, beyond the apostolic faith, beyond the faith once delivered to the saints. They are too sophisticated for the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the cross, the gospel of, if I may put it even more simply, the crucified king. And because it is their own gospel which they follow, they have broken down into these various factions, and they've blamed the apostles for it, blaming Apollos, blaming Paul, even blaming Christ for the division that is among them. Now I must ask you, does that sound familiar at all to you? I need not tell you this Sunday morning, standing in this pulpit, of that familiarity because most of you are members of a community of Christian intellectuals that have in a myriad of ways abandoned the pure milk of the gospel and have departed from the apostolic faith, at least many of them. The root cause of this is little more than arrogance, the prideful deception of Satan, a deadly deceit of worldliness that has infected the body of Christ with a kind of factionalism. The undermining of creedal faith, the abandonment of godly order, especially concerning marriage, are not adiaphora issues at all. They go to the heart of the gospel. 
And as I was telling the senior high youth this morning, marriage is at the heart of the gospel. Marriage is about the gospel. The creed is about the gospel. Christians cannot on these things agree to disagree because we wind up disagreeing about the very center of our faith, Jesus Christ himself. The authority of scripture and the authority of the church is being undermined. And Christian intellectuals, I must say, are often at the dead center of the conflict. What the Christians of Corinth lack is not the wisdom of intellectuals, but the humility of disciples. At one point in the letter, Paul derides them for filing lawsuits against each other. And at ASN this past week, we heard a wonderful talk about this text. The problem here is, in one sense, the scandal of that simple idea that Christians would sue one another. I know that scandal personally. What, would under, what should unbelievers think? It's shameful. But it's also shameful because these Christians are saying, in essence, that there isn't one, anyone in their church wise enough or trusted enough to decide their cases. They have, in a way, admitted defeat. They have admitted that they have no wisdom. You see, there's a kind of religion in which the only thing that matters is that you can look down your nose over the fence at your neighbor. You can be morally superior, theologically superior, intellectually superior. The comfort of this kind of religion is that if you have wealth, you can neglect some greater commandments and say, well, at least I've got that going for me. My checking account is flush. I don't have to worry about all those other things that other people have to worry about. If you're intelligent, you can judge others for their lack of understanding and say, well, I've got problems, but at least I don't have that problem. This is actually the stock and trade of today's woke intellectuals. Let's be serious about that for a moment. There's a kind of pride attached to it. And there's a kind of pride on the opposite end as well among the right. And if you're one of those people who lives an upright life, a scrupulous person, a person who never does any wrong, at least in their own mind, and at least not publicly, then you have that going for you. And so you can look down upon your morally corrupted neighbor, even as your heart is full of utter malice, and you can say, I belong to this group. Isn't it great to belong to a group? Such a comfort, but not really. What Paul wants these Christians to see is that none of them has a ground for boasting. And so he sets before them an example, the example of his own life and his own witness, a witness founded upon the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The holy mystery is made known to the apostolic witnesses. And he does so not leaning on his own eloquence or understanding or building upon his own foundation, but building upon the chief cornerstone upon which the apostolic foundation is built, Jesus Christ himself. He considers himself to be a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And so he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I want you to hear that in the context of this factionalism. A servant, does a servant get to insist on their own way? Not if they want to keep their jobs. Does a steward insist that, well, it belongs to me anyway, so I can do what I want with it? No. 
So he says this. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. There's a tendency for us to see ourselves as masters, as experts, to think that we have so much understanding built up that we can exercise mastery over the things of God. That we have deep wisdom and that what makes us important is what we know, or at least in this time of deeply divided ideology, what group we identify with. The problem, if I can boil it down, is that true wisdom for the Christian consists not in what faction you're a part of or what party you're a part of, even if you're a part of Chloe's people, right? The innocent bystanders who say, well, Paul, there's there's some distraction here. There's some problems here. It doesn't consist in those things. True wisdom for the Christian consists in humility, the fear of the Lord. It consists in obedience to divine command and revelation. I love what our missionary friend, Father Jerry Kramer, says about this. God's love language is obedience. And obedience is almost a bad word today. Don't use it. You should never use obedience. In fact, obedience was written right out of the marriage rite in the prayer book because we thought, ugh, we don't like that. But we must remember something that's at the center of this, that when obedience fails, love fails. When Christians grasp at straws, never sure as to what exactly obedience looks like, not because God hasn't said what he commands, but because their eyes are clouded and they decide to do things their own way, and they simply guess, or they think they know better, or presume to overrule divine command, love fails. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful conclusion to the Space Trilogy, That Hideous Strength, and by the way, if you're looking for Lenten reading, just pick up the Space Trilogy. It'll take you, you know, four, five solid weeks of reading, and by Easter you'll be pumped up and ready to go. And it's good fun, good clean fun. Lewis portrays a woman, Jane, who is horribly unhappy in her marriage. She feels alone. She feels like her husband, Mark, doesn't care about her, whether she is there at home or away. She says, have we fallen out of love? Is there some problem here? I thought we would be equal, she says. And Ransom, this figure which is of the most importance in the novels because he is an image of divine wisdom, or at least a man who's received divine wisdom, the knowledge of the gods and the story, remarks this, thinking upon those words in the marriage rite that refer to obedience in the old prayer book. He says, you do not fail in obedience through lack of love, but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. The cause of our division is now as it was then, a failure of obedience. A failure of obedience to scripture, a failure of obedience to the church, a failure of obedience to God's commands, a failure of obedience to the apostolic faith, because all of these things, the church, the scriptures, and the faith once delivered, testify and testify faithfully to Jesus Christ, the true God, who who is the fullness of divine revelation. And because we fail in obedience to Jesus, we fail in love. Paul appeals to this Corinthian church that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Thus it is no surprise that in the crescendo of the letter he writes in these wonderful familiar words, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he continues. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this isn't just a nice verse to be read at weddings. In fact, if you want to really make me happy, just pick Ephesians 5 for your wedding and and we'll be good. But it's to say something which is the heart of this essential question. What fails in us? Is it love or is it obedience? Or is it both? This is a word to the church that Paul is making throughout this letter. It is a word that calls us to mutual submission, calls us to forsake our own egos, calls us to forsake our own way, our own desires, our own ambitions, and sacrificing all of that to consider others better than ourselves. Our main aim is not equality. It can't be. Our aim should be, indeed it must be, to bear all things, to endure all things, to no longer insist on our own way. And this is the obedience that is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Anytime I hear of people saying, equality is a big thing in the church, it should be a really big value of ours, I say, why? Why? What do we care? For this Let us go to the shores of Galilee and hear the call of the Lord to those first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. This wonderful, indeed mysterious statement of his, this call of his, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To that day they had been fishermen. If you've ever known a professional fisherman, you know that they insist upon their own way. They know where the fish are. When I was at A&M, I had a guy who lived across the hall from me, and he was an Alaskan, and in the off times between semesters, he was a professional fisherman. I mean, king crab, anything, you, salmon, whatever it was you could catch, he was there, and he was making, you know, just in, the, just in vacations, making $30,000, $40,000 a year, just doing this and bankrolling his education. It was an amazing thing. But he would always talk about the captain on the boat. He was quite a character. He would sit there and smoke cigars and say, go over there. We're going to go over there. We're going to catch. You know, he was just a, a character. But I'll always remember that because it shows that fishing, in this sense, is simultaneously an act of pride and an act of faith. On that day, Jesus called these four men to turn away from their ambitions and their pride and to follow him in true faith. With that wonderfully mysterious call, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And see what they do. Note their obedience to the Lord. Note their faith. 
They don't delay. They don't procrastinate. They don't go home to talk things over with mom and dad. Hey, mom and dad, I got a good offer from a new rabbi. Uh, What do you think? Should I do it or not? They don't even go to the rabbi in Capernaum and say, what do you think of this guy? Is he trustworthy? I'm one of those, I think Peter was married. (laughs) He doesn't go to his wife and say, honey, what do you think? No, they forsake all and follow Jesus immediately. As an aside today, maybe you've procrastinated in some manner or another. Maybe it's trivial, maybe it's not. Maybe you're hearing the call of God with crystal clarity and to this day have avoided it. There can be no mistaking it. It's time right now. It's time to follow. Time to leave behind this sin or that. It is time to be obedient in your family life. Time to be obedient in your single life. Time to hand over your sense of control and to obediently surrender. Note what Matthew says in the case of both sets of brothers. Immediately they left their nets. Matthew isn't like Mark. He doesn't use this word over and over and over again ad nauseum. In Mark's gospel, the word immediately is almost like a comma. In Matthew's gospel, he's using it to express the urgency of obedience, the urgency of the call of the gospel, the urgency of surrender to the life of discipleship. There is, I should note, a difference between these two sets of brothers. It's an important one. Peter and Andrew are in the boat with their father. They're casting the nets, or they're actually in the boat. I don't think their father's in there. They're casting their nets, and they're doing what might be called the glamorous work of fishing. They're going out for a catch. That's the fun part. James and John are in the boat mending their nets with their father Zebedee. Some commentators, such as John Chrysostom, have noted that this points to their poverty, They aren't wealthy enough to buy new nets. They have to fix the old ones. They are mending what is broken. And I would argue that these two actions, both casting out for a catch and mending the nets for a later catch, are two concurrent and necessary actions of faithful discipleship and faithful membership in the church. In the former, we are about the work of fishing, the work of evangelism, the work of making disciples. In the latter, let's not get this wrong, they are still fishing, James and John. They are still fishing, just not in the glamorous way. They point us to the work of amendment of life, the work of amendment of division in the church, the work of repairing the instruments of the church's witness. And let me say this, that why, you know, why, do, you, why do you bother to mend nets in the first place? Is it not obvious? You can answer, it's okay, I won't be offended. To catch more fish. (laughs) So that you don't lose anything that might come up in that net otherwise if there's a hole in it. They mend the nets for a greater catch. One of the greatest and most difficult barriers to effective evangelism in the church today is division and malice and factionalism in the church. 
Effective discipleship requires both actions. We must be evangelists out to bring the world to faith and conversion in Jesus Christ and also about the work of conversion in ourselves, committed to the faith ourselves, committed to amendment of life. And this responsibility does not fall, thanks be to God, only to professionals or only to bishops or only to priests. I had a parishioner once tell me, you know, you tell us all we should be evangelists, but that's your job. I thought, well, okay, <laughs> you're obviously not getting it. No one can say, well, I'm not an evangelist, or I'm not a mender of nets. You are both. You have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel, and you have a responsibility to amend and repair division in the church and to guard it against division in the first place. And here's what I want to say this morning as we begin a new year together as a parish with the annual meeting later on today. The first is to simply commend you to say, well done. Christ Church has a wonderfully united witness and we are making strides to repair and mend the nets of the church by going back to the basics. It's an amazingly wonderful thing. We're founding our collective witness upon the witness of the apostles and the sacred scriptures and being obedient to that witness. We are a people on mission in our area, in our city. And we've grown not because we're so great or so worthy, but because we've been obedient to the Lord who has called us to proclaim his gospel. That's no small thing, especially as an unbelieving world calls out to us to abandon this faithful witness. I was remarking to a couple brother priests this past week who have inquired of me about the work of catechesis, that one of the joys of catechesis is I don't have to make up a plan or decide what I'm going to teach for an hour on Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. I simply open the catechism and go for it. I do a little bit of planning, but it works. And one of the things I love about it is that no one can say at the end of the day, well, that's just Father Nelson's opinion. I'm not bringing to bear my intelligence or my eloquence, but the teaching of the church. And that's a great relief because it brings unity, it brings conviction, and it brings clarity, and to my joy, it brings in a catch. The other thing that I want to say this morning is actually quite simple. It's to recall you to obedience to recall you to the immediacy of obedience. When the church is plagued with each person insisting on their own way, love fails. When everyone insists that they know best, thinking that they alone see things rightly, obedience fails and so does love. But when we live out the life of discipleship by submitting to one another and by submitting to true and godly authority, and by this I mean to our bishops and to the authority of the scriptures. When we seek to be patient and kind and to set aside our jealousy and rancorous boasting, the Lord will work. He will have his way. And what is his way? Simply this, calling an unbelieving world to believe, calling men, women, and children into his kingdom and bringing sinners to repentance that they may be saved. that we may be fishers of men. 
Years ago at a church planting conference, one of the speakers recounted to the audience there, and I was there for this, he recounted how the church does evangelism based upon the fishing methods often of the modern era and not of those first disciples. Those first disciples didn't do evangelism like they were modern fishermen. They didn't cast a line with a bobber and a lure. They didn't sit there with a styrofoam crate full of beer, hanging out on the lake in their bass boats. That kind of fishing would have been unknown to them. They also, as lovely as it is, didn't go out into rivers with flywheels. They cast nets. They went out for a big catch. And the church is an immense net with an immense calling to catch all kinds of fish. Later on in the story, Peter would cast his net, saying to the Lord, at your word, I will let down the nets. There are numerous great catches in the Gospels. And in obedience to the Lord's command, he lets down the nets, and he catches an immense catch, so much so that the nets were breaking, and they had to call another boat from the shore to help bring it all in. The great writer on evangelism, Leslie Newbegin, once wrote, the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? The only answer and the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Let me say that again. The only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. And I am so gratified that that actually speaks about you this morning. We got a lot further to go. And I stand before you so wonderfully glad and gratified that the Lord has seen fit to make and mold Christ's church into a congregation full of fishers of men. May he continue to mold us, may he continue to mend us, and may he make us truly fishers of men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.